This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Krista Irola. I'm an orthotist here and a prosthetist here at UCSF. And my focus is in pediatric orthotics and prosthetics. So we're going to be talking about a primarily pediatric treatment. I've been doing this for about five years here at UCSF. And this is my colleague, Corinne. Hi, everyone. I'm Corinne Shirley. I also work at the pediatric hospital as a certified orthotist. Great. So the goal of our presentation today is really to have you gain a better understanding of what cranial molding helmets are and why this treatment can be useful for a certain population. So we're going to kind of talk you through foundational concepts and then bring you through the entire treatment process and then answer any of the questions that you may have. First, we're going to start with the cranial anatomy and talking about how that anatomy deforms. Infant cranial anatomy is very different than adult cranial anatomy. The infant cranium composed about nine bones, and these bones are each separated by these sutures, which are fibrous junctures that allow for articulation between the bones. So it's not one solid piece. It's a bunch of little bones that are connected by these fibrous joints. And those fibrous joints exist for two main reasons. One is to allow for growth. So as the brain is growing inside the cranium, it actually places pressure on the bones externally, and that is the impetus for them to start to grow and expand. So it's the internal pressure from the brain growth, creating pressure on these outside bones. And then the suture sites are where those, where the bone grows. It's where those osteoblasts and osteoclasts are. The second reason is not just for growth, but for actually getting through the birth canal. So those sutures, especially when they're during the first couple of minutes of life, those are very, very pliable, and they actually allow for deformation of the head to go through the birth canal. And that's deliberate, and usually that resolves within the first 24 hours, although occasionally you see it persist a little bit longer. But the deformation from the birth canal, normal. The anatomy is designed to be able to do that. Now, when you extend beyond the deformation that occurs in the birth canal, you have other types of deformation that can occur for a couple of different reasons. And there's a couple of different typical shapes that this deformation takes. Plagiocephaly is when the head has a kind of trapezoidal shape. So it has one flat spot on the back and then a boss spot where the forehead is coming out on the forehead. It's almost like one side of the head got translated forward, along with the ear as well. The ear gets translated forward in that as well. And there's two main reasons that you might see this particular type of deformation. One is positional. The baby's positioned where they're laying on one side, and the outside forces of them laying on that side of their head consistently when their bones are very soft and their sutures are the most pliable, causes that entire side of the head to flatten and come forward. The second reason is if one of those sutures that we talked about actually closes earlier than it's supposed to and doesn't allow growth in a certain direction. And so the head is not able to grow in the areas where it's flattened. Another type of asymmetry you can see is when it's very wide and flatten the back, and that's called brachycephaly. That's when 
essentially the entire back of the head. They're not laying on one side or the other. The entire back of the head becomes flattened by the forces of laying down or because they get a synostosis, that's that suture fusing early of the coronal suture. The third type is scaphocephaly. That's when the head is very narrow, almost like a football shape, where it's very long and narrow on the sides. And again, two reasons that that might happen. One is positional. The baby is consistently laying on one side or the other, or that suture, that sagittal synostosis, the sagittal suture fuses early. So why does this happen? Um, We're really not sure is the baseline reason, but they have some risk factors that increase the likelihood of this type of deformation occurring. Um, One is the position in utero. If the baby is not moving around in utero and consistently positioned in one way, and there's a constant force getting placed in a specific area of their head, that means that they're more likely to get deformation of that part of their head while they're still in utero developing. They come out with that head shape, and they might already have a heavy preference towards positioning a certain way based on their in utero positioning. Environmental positioning, so that's after they're born, they're positioning themselves in a certain way when they're laying down on the bed. And if parents are not consistently able to move the children, then they can sit, they continue to put the force in that one spot, and that reinforces it. A couple of things that make environmental positioning a little bit more challenging are premature. Premature babies tend to have more health complications. They tend to move around less. Moving around to distribute forces is a great way to prevent flattening from happening in one localized spot. But if they're not moving as much because they're sicker and they're younger and they were born earlier, their bones are more pliable, they're more likely to get that flatness. Torticollis. This is a particular type of neck tightness because one of the neck muscles is very tight, and so they will always position in a certain way, tilting their head because that neck tightness is making them uncomfortable, and they don't want to stretch away from it, so they continue to position. If you have a tight muscle, you might not move a certain way because you don't want to stress that tight muscle. That's exactly what's happening with torticollis. Hypotonia basically means that they're weak. Their muscles are more globally weak. And that's the same thing like premature babies. They don't move around as much. And because they're not moving around as much, we're seeing that they get the flattening on whatever side that they're preferring to lay on. Low birth weight, same thing. That feeds into that same idea. It's a sicker baby, and so they're not tending to move as much. Firstborn, this is because the canal that they are exiting through is a little bit tighter when they're the firstborn child, and so the pressures exerted during childbirth are greater, so that might be a reason that firstborn children are more likely to have these deformational forces from the childbirth process that don't resolve within the first 24 hours. Then multiple births, they're packed in there, right? There's not as much space for them to move. And sometimes they might get stuck in a position where they're actually, the twins are leaning against each other in a very specific way, and they're not able to shift around because of the limited space. A lot of times we'll actually see twins come in where they have the plagiocephaly, the flattening and the bossing on one side, on opposite sides, because in the womb they were leaning against each other the entire time. The second type with twins is one was sitting on the other, and so the one who is getting sat on has the flat head on the back because they weren't able to move around. So it's either both because they're coupled against each other or one has it and the other one doesn't because one was restricted into a certain area of the womb. 
And the last is prolonged labor. So if they're getting that consistent force during labor, that's deforming the head shape, which the head is supposed to be designed to bounce back from that, but doesn't always, then that can also create a persistent deformation. This is just a little bit more detail about torticollis to give you a better understanding of what I was talking about specifically. That shortened neck, neck muscle is called the sternocleidomastoid, and it actually runs and rotates the head along with leaning it to the side. So it has a rotational piece as, as well as a side lean piece, which causes that flattening to happen on the side opposite of the tight muscle. So if they have torticollis where the left side is tighter, they'll rotate their head towards the right, and then the back of their right head, the right back of their head will be flattened because of that constant preferential positioning. And one of the things that's shown here is immediately after that's noticed, they start recommending exercises and stretching and repositioning that the parents do to remove that preference and try to get that muscle to loosen up. So now we'll move into the incidence and prevalence. So helmet treatment has actually been around since the 1970s, but there was a huge uptick in awareness of plagiocephaly and different deformational um, positioning um, in the 1990s when the Back to Sleep program uh, became popular. It was an initiative that really helped with sudden infant death syndrome, and the biggest thing was to place these children on their back. Um, so... This started happening when, when they're really young, from ages zero um, to two months. You don't have a lot of movement. Uh, and so when you're repositioning them on their back constantly, you've got a lot of pressure on the back of the head. So age um, is dependent uh, with deformation. It primarily occurs from zero to six months of age because the child is growing quickly and isn't moving quite as much. This is more prevalent in males than females. Again, we're not sure why, but mothers are particularly concerned about this because their children are going to have short hair and they're worried that they're going to be picked on um, later in life. It is two times more common to have right side flattening. Um, this primarily occurs with plagiocephaly and torticollis, and a large majority of these patients have torticollis um, with positional plagiocephaly. So now we're going to move into the cranial helmet treatment a little bit more, and we're going to talk about the effectiveness. Does putting a helmet on a child really work in correcting their head shape? And in theory, yes, they receive the deformation, we think, from laying on the back of their head for prolonged periods, so there's pressure in that area where it's now flat. So we just do the reverse. We contact all of the areas that are prominent, and we leave space in the helmet around the flatness for the baby to grow into. Um, so it only works if the patient grows. We're not pushing on different parts of the head. They have to grow into it and be remolded that way. There are other factors that determine the effectiveness as well. Uh, the biggest one is compliance. We don't know when a child is going to grow, so we need to have them wear it 23 hours a day to really capture that growth. If you don't put it on the child, then that's not going to happen. Age is a big one as well. When they're younger, like I said before, they're growing at a much greater rate, so we see correction quicker. Circumference percentile for head circumference is also a big one because if they have a lot of growth remaining, then we have a better chance of being able to correct that head shape than with 
little growth remaining. And the last one is fit, which Crystal will go into a little bit later. But having a proper fit and good contact in the areas that are prominent is really important in having an effective helmet treatment. So this is a lot of text, but this was a study done in South Korea. And they looked at about 300 um, patients and their charts and looked at the, they separated the patients into groups by their age. So all the way in the left-hand column, the first column that you see there, you'll see the groups. So 3M delineates three months of age and all the way up to nine months of age. And this is when they began the helmet treatment. So all of the percentages in the middle here, our CVAI is something we'll talk about a little later, but I like this chart because all the way to the right-hand side, you can see the rate of success or the effectiveness. So you can see that when the patient started helmet treatment a little bit younger, they had greater rates of success than when they started at an older age. And this study was great because it found an optimal age for helmet treatment, which they said to be five months of age. This gives the child a little bit of time to build up neck strength before putting a helmet on their head. Um, but there's a statistically significant difference between month five and month six. So they really, they really think the optimal month of putting a child in a helmet who has a severe deformity is month five. For the sake of balance, I also put this study in here, which was a study conducted in the Netherlands. And it looked at 82 patients, and what they did was a randomized control trial. And this is technically a gold standard in the scientific world. They took the 84 patients, they separated them into two groups. Um, one got the helmet treatment, the other one did not. And they started at five months of age and ended the treatment at 12 months of age. The group that did not have the helmets, they were also not supposed to participate in any other activity that could help reduce the deformity, such as repositioning. Um, so what they found was that no conclusive evidence, um, that there's no conclusive evidence that a significant or clinically meaningful difference in improvement of skull shape was found at the 24-month follow-up between the two groups. And in a lot of peer reviews, um, they found that their methods were pretty sound, that um, they separated the children well, they followed up well. Um, but there was a big controversy in our field um, because a lot of what we were seeing with the helmet fit was that children had the helmets on sideways or it was tilting or rotating quite a bit on the child. So that wasn't really well assessed um, and as well as they weren't keeping track of whether or not the, the babies without the helmets were actually not participating in other therapies. Um, so there is a little bit of, there's a couple things that create some um, validity issues within this study, but I think it's an important one to note because it can cause some issues with insurance if they say, oh, this treatment is not an effective one. Now we're going to kind of, delve into the process that families go through when there is a baby who's starting to exhibit some signs of deformational plagiocephaly, brachycephaly, or scaphocephaly. The process really starts with their pediatrician visits, and usually it's honestly the parents that bring it up first. They notice that something's different about their child's head shape, and 
they're concerned about it, and they bring it up during their routine appointments that they're having in the first couple of weeks of the child's life. And during these appointments, the pediatrician's looking at assessing a lot of different things. And as part of that assessment, they're looking at any changes with repositioning. So they see this flatness at week two. Is there any difference if you're doing more tummy time or repositioning the child more? Is physical therapy needed? That torticollis typically gets identified fairly early. It's most common for torticollis to be identified right after birth if you're starting to see that deformation. It's less likely that it would go undiagnosed for months. So checking in, saying here's physical therapy referral, start to see a physical therapist to do those exercises. They're also just checking their developmental milestones. How are they progressing? Are they meeting their landmarks or are they struggling? Are there other concerns based on their birth complications? Are there other things going on? Head deformation is more common with children who were, again, premature or sicker at birth. And so kids who have some developmental delays might be more prone to this deformational forces being placed on a certain area of the head. Uh, Preferential positioning, this is not torticollis. There's no tightness. There's no forces inside the muscles that are occurring to make the baby lay a certain way, but they have a heavy preference. And a lot of doctors think this is just related to the way they were positioned in utero and them developing that preference even though they don't have tightness. And then gestational age. So again, if they were born premature. After the MD does an assessment, uh, there's a whole treatment timeline that generally they go through. And during the first zero to three months, it's usually just observation, repositioning, therapy, and surgery if necessary. So we touch on surgery because if it's a synostosis, if one of those sutures closed early, there needs to be a surgical intervention <coughs> in order to open that suture. And a lot of the Patients that we see were referred when they see this deformation and it's more severe from their pediatrician to a craniofacial specialist or a neurologist in order to check and make sure before we do any other treatments during this first three months of life, is it a synostosis? Because that surgical intervention is necessary. Otherwise, they start to have developmental delays. The intracranial pressure can increase because the section of the head is restricted from growing. Once we hit about four months, that's usually when somebody with a more severe deformational plagiocephaly, brachycephaly, would come to see us. And that's really when we would, the earliest we would want to start cranial helmet treatment. And the reason is a couple of reasons. One is just their ability to hold up their own head. Uh, if we don't need to add a couple of ounces of weight, we prefer them to reach that developmental milestone normally and know that they'll be able to support the weight of their head and not have their development impeded by adding the helmet into the process. Um, and also, it's just a lot of it corrects on its own with repositioning in a good percentage of children who have milder to moderate cases. And we want to give that repositioning an opportunity to work. Intervening right away and putting them in a helmet if it could have resolved on its own, given a little bit more time, is not our goal here. Our goal is only to treat patients who absolutely need it, because as you'll see as we go through this process, this is not an easy treatment and requires a significant time commitment on the part of the family to participate. And we only want the children who really actually need the treatment in order to achieve a good result in their head shape to go through it. After 12 months, we typically don't start helmet treatment. And the reason for that is the growth spurts really 
decline. They aren't as big in the cranium after that point. And because we're guiding growth with the helmets, if we're not having bigger growth spurts, the results are really minimized. And the risk and hassle of needing to wear a helmet is greater uh, that cost is greater than the benefit that you're getting from wearing the helmet once you're greater than 12 months. Now, this is adjusted for if they were born prematurely. So they might be a year old, but if they're you know, only 10 months old when you do the calculation because they were born early, we look at how old they actually are based on when they were born. And 18 months at the end of treatment, that's a hard stop. Even if, some, if somebody's already in a helmet at 12 months, we might keep them in it to get incremental improvements. They've already adjusted. The family's doing well with it. You get the secondary benefit of it being a little protective while they're learning how to walk. And so some parents keep them in it a little bit longer, but 18 months is a hard stop for us because we really can't justify keeping them in it longer than that. So now we're going to kind of guide you through the process that we go through, starting with the initial evaluation. So what we look at when they come into the office are a lot of these factors that we've already talked about with you. We look at their history. We look at if the parents have tried other methods, such as repositioning. If they have torticollis, we ask, have you completed physical therapy yet? Sometimes addressing that neck tightness has a huge effect on uh, correction of that shape. We also want to know about the delivery, pregnancy complications that they may have had. Are they a firstborn? So all of these factors that Krista has talked about, we're asking the parents. We're also really trying to get to know them as individuals and as a family because we see them quite a bit over the course of the next couple of months. So we want to get a feel for their dynamic. Then we do a visual assessment of the child's head shape and kind of talk to the parents about what, what bothers the most about it, what are their concerns. And then we capture the shape of their head. So prior to us having 3D imaging um, and our scanner, we took hand measurements and casted the children for their helmets. Now we have this great 3D scanner, Vorum scanner, that we can lay the child inside and capture their head shape as well as get measurements. So it um, kills two birds with one stone, if you will. We can, we can do both, so it's much more efficient. Um, we also spend a lot of time educating the family on the treatment process. It is a large commitment, a really, really big time commitment, but also just emotionally. You know, you're not seeing your child, the top of your child's head, um, so the family needs to be prepared for that. So it's approximately six to eight appointments, but it will depend on, you know, how quickly the child is growing um, and how compliant the family is with the treatment. So then once we do all of that, we submit to insurance for authorization and try to get um, helmets covered for families that we really believe could utilize this treatment. So we start by kind of looking at down from the, at the top of their head. We get a top-down view, so it's kind of a cross-sectional area view you're looking at here. We look for that parallelogram shape, and we look for that bossing and the ipsilateral occipital flattening. Um, there is some facial asymmetry with children with severe plagiocephaly, so we're looking for that. Sometimes one eye is bigger than the other eye, um, or one ear is shifted forward on the side of the posterior flattening, and there can be sometimes a unilateral bald spot. It's important to note that plagiocephaly can actually come in a lot of shapes and sizes, so we have two little views for you to take a look at. Uh, the first one on the top 
is actually a combination uh, between plagiocephaly and scaphicephaly. So the head shape is very narrow, but it's also asymmetrical. And then the bottom one is more of a classic presentation of plagiocephaly, except this child doesn't really have much forehead bossing at all. It's mostly in the back, back of his head. So there are different severity levels of plagiocephaly, and a lot of times when a child comes into our office, we can look at it and almost immediately know if they're going to need a helmet or not. Um, we do need the numbers to verify that, but um, you can pretty much see the difference, I think. So these are the pictures we kind of have in our heads that we're comparing that child to to kind of determine the severity um, before we take the scan. I think it helps us troubleshoot the scan. We're aligning it. We're doing a lot of things. So having a good visual and understanding of what their head looks like and feels like helps us um, to get good quantitative information. So for brachycephaly, it's much the same. This We're not looking for the asymmetry as much, but that forehead bossing uh, across the entire forehead. We're also looking for a wide width from side to side. Their head is, is pretty wide. Um, and there's usually a bald spot at midline with an increased cranial vault, and that just means their height of their head is a little bit taller. We also look um, for scaphicephaly in this way for that narrow shaped head. Um, and we put these pictures up here, these cross-sectional views, because this first one is more of your classic brachycephaly presentation with flat across the whole back of the head. And then the bottom picture is a combination of brachycephaly and plagiocephaly. So you can kind of see the differences here. All right, and we know it's hard to visualize, so... We have this video. This is the screen you start with, and this is actually the scanner that we use, the star scanner, and this is our beautiful model baby. Uh, she has a stockinette on her head because we use that to mat down the hair because the cameras will actually be sensitive enough to pick up the little hairs, and that'll interfere with our measurements. We lay her down in the scanner, and then we usually have the parents help with holding the arms and legs a little bit so they're not moving around too much. And the reason for that is we need them to be still for three seconds, which for a small baby often takes between 10 and 15 scans. You need to do it over and over again. And we try to position where we have our hand on their chin and try to hold the top of their head. Just to give you a little bit more information about the scanner itself, it has four cameras that run along a channel on the side of this black box here. And then it has a laser light that runs along the baby's head. It doesn't have any radiation, it's just cameras to create a 3D image. And this shows you a little bit better so that you can see it. So those cameras are on the sides here. And then the process of scanning itself, you can actually see I'm holding her here and then there's a laser that goes down the top of her head from the top down to create that 3D image. And then this is what we get. We take that scan from top down, and we get a couple of different views that we can look at. One is this three-dimensional image of the whole head, and then we can look at cross-sections. The, the two other images here show cross-sections of the head. So where that yellow line is, it's like it's looking from the top down at that cross-section. And we use this screen to calibrate the shape, which means align it so that their head isn't tilting one way or the other, and then also add markers in order to tell the computer system where are the different parts of the anatomy. Where are the eyes? Where are the ears? Where's the nose? And this is 
all the calibration process in order for our measurements to be more accurate. Because in addition to taking, we're going to talk about all the measurements that we take, we look at facial measurements as well as head measurements in order to really assess the whole picture of where they're asymmetric and where do we need to focus the treatment. So what measurements can we get from the scan? Um, there's actually a lot of numbers that come out of that scan, but I think the primary ones are head circumference. This is important because it gives us a baseline of where we started, and so we can assess growth over time. It also allows us to look um, at the World Health Organization chart and put their head in a percentile to kind of estimate how long their treatment might be. We also look at the cephalic ratio, which is just a ratio from the front to back, um, side, to, and side to side over the front to back. And this basically will tell us if a head is too narrow or flat in the back. So if it is above 0.9, we're looking at somebody who has severe brachycephaly. And if it's below 0.8, then we're looking at somebody who has scaphycephaly. So anywhere in that 0.8 range, um, they're pretty normal. Um, that's a normal head shape. And just as a note, this, these numbers are based on what the U.S. considers to be normal numbers. Those numbers are different in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Different countries have normal standards for what the acceptable average head shape is. And some cultures actually have a preference towards head shapes that we would consider to be scaphocephaly or brachycephaly. The cultures actually actively try to do remolding of the head to meet a more aesthetically pleasing shape based on what their cultural standards and history has been. But the numbers we're giving you are the U.S. standard for what the head shape should be. And then the last um, metric we use is the cranial vault asymmetry index. And this, as its name implies, is how much asymmetry a child might have. So we take the diagonals across each side of their head. Um, it utilizes the, the difference between these diagonals to come up with its unitless number. You can then use this CVAI um, that the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta put in this great chart to determine severity of plagiocephaly. This is what a lot of insurance companies will use to justify treatment. Um, so a lot of this correlates to the actual diagonal difference. Um, what our goal of treatment is, is to get it down to about five millimeters of difference. Um, it looks pretty good that way, and it's a pretty normalized head shape. So we usually talk a little bit with parents about this and whether or not um, we recommend treatment. So these are the measurements for our patient model. Uh, she, her circumference was pretty small, 424 millimeters. And what we're looking for here is we're not really looking at the diagonals in this instance. We're looking at the cranial breadth, and we're looking at the cranial length. So her cranial breadth is very small, and her cranial length is very long. So this gives us a very small um, ratio to work with. So she is definitely in the scaphicephaly range. And you can see that kind of from the scan. Um, that red circle um, is, is what these measurements are taken from. And the blue circle is from later after she has received some of her treatment. She also, we also like to plot um, where the initial head circumference falls on the World Health Organization chart. Um, they have one for boys as well as girls. And this patient falls in the 63rd percentile of head growth. 
Um, so we use this chart to determine how much head growth they have remaining. And for her to reach a normal range for her ratio, um, we would expect that she would need um, about 25 millimeters of growth. With cranial remolding, we see about 50% um, improvement in the flattened regions um, of the head circumference that they gain. So that means she would need to grow at least 50 millimeters for us to see that 25 millimeters of difference. So you can see that that puts her up to the end of our helmet treatment, which is about 18 months. And this can vary depending on if we get a better than 50% correction, which sometimes we do. Um, but that is what we would estimate to the parents so that they're prepared for that length of treatment. So the biggest con of having a helmet is that it's it's warm inside of there. We lose a lot of heat um, from our bodies through our head. So a lot of the cons that we see with kids really result from having that heat factor. So skin irritation, um, they're sweating inside of it. Lots of parents complain about the smell of the helmet. Um, and it can be hard to adjust to sleep um, if they're warm. Or even if the helmet is just uncomfortable. It's, it's new. It's this big thing they have to wear while they're asleep. Um, so... Those are the cons, but we do have some pros. Um, it works. We've seen it work. Um, it can be protective. I've had some parents come in and say, I'm so glad they have this helmet on. They run into everything. They fall over all the time, and I'm so happy because I don't have to worry about them. So uh, they love that aspect, and it's customizable. A lot of times families have a lot of fun decorating their helmets. Um, you know, if they have to go through this treatment, it's really nice that you can make it a little fun and pick your patterns. So there are several helmet types that we can choose. So after we determine kind of the severity and the shape of their head, we determine what kind of helmet we want to use. So there are two main types of plastic that we use to make the helmets. Um, one of them is copolymer. So the images you see on the left side of your screen are made out of copolymer, and they have an aliplast liner inside of them. So there's two options. There's the side opening, which is the top picture on the left. Um, and we'll use that for more mild to moderate plagiocephaly and brachycephaly cases. Um, but in cases where we might need a little bit more contact to keep the helmet from tilting or rotating, we do use the bivalve design. It is also a really good design to use for scaphicephaly patients because we're trying to contact the front and the back of their head, and that top head part of their head is also a really good contact area to just grip and keep everything from moving so that they can grow side to side. The Serlin type is the clear material you see on the right-hand side of the screen. Um, we use this um, for kids who have had surgery, so we want to monitor their suture lines. We can see right through the helmet. Or children who have problems with the inner liner of the copolymer um, helmets. It also comes in the side opening or the bivalved. Um, a lot of times people ask us why not just use these to start with, uh, but they're a lot harder to modify once the child starts growing. In the uh, copolymer helmets, we can just shave out the aliplast and make them room and reduce the pressure, uh, which is a lot easier than trying to heat out uh, sides of, of this clear helmet. 
So after we decide what helmet to utilize, we send a scan to Ortho America, which is an FDA-approved facility. In America, it has to be FDA-approved. So we couldn't make it in our office, even if we really wanted to. Um, so we send that scan to Ortho America. They modify it. We tell them exactly what we want. So we say the 532nd thickness copolymer shell. We tell them we want a half-inch P-Lite or Alliplast liner. We, um, the stopgap foam insert is on this helmet. That just really helps to mend the two sides together. And then there's a Velcro closure to make it easy for the parents to open and close. Um, and then we also ask that they do finished trim lines, though we leave them pretty long. Just in case anything doesn't transfer really well in the scan, we can shave around their ears and make sure everything fits appropriately. And now we're going to go into what it's actually like to go through a cranial helmet fitting process. So after we've taken that scan, it usually takes about two weeks for Orthomerica, the fabricator that we work with, to make the helmet. And then the patient comes back, and they've had about two weeks of growth. So like Corinne mentioned, we usually make the helmet quite a bit longer than it needs to be in order to have extra room to accommodate for that potential head growth and so that we have to make adjustments during that fitting appointment. The trim lines are the first things that we adjust. So what trim lines means are all of these edges around the helmet. And so the first thing we'll do is adjust the front trim line to make sure it's just above the eyebrows. We want to have as much contact with the forehead as possible in the areas that are bossed. So for plagiocephaly, that would be contact along one side of the forehead that's bossed. For brachycephaly, contact across the whole forehead. And for scaphocephaly, contact against the whole forehead. Then the second thing we look at is the ears. You can see this is a very small opening for the ears. So usually when we first put the helmet on to do the initial fitting, this is pretty close to their ears. And then we'll trim it to be opening, the opening to make it a little bit bigger, but we want it to be as close as possible around the ears. And these sideburns here are very important because they help us with rotation. The helmet's going to want to pivot on those high points that we're trying to hold. And so the sideburns help provide resistance against that motion by pushing a little bit into the cheek when they go to move in a certain direction. Then the next thing we look at is the trim line on the back of the head. We want to make sure that we come as low as possible and actually cup into the base of their neck a little bit. That helps us control movement of the helmet from front to back. And so this actually cups into the base of the neck, but what we want to be really careful about is we don't want to actually limit neck extension. So we want to reduce the motion of the helmet with, while still allowing them to arch their backs and when they start to crawl, really do full neck extension because that muscle development is very, very important for them to get normal curvature of their spine when they're starting to crawl and develop and pull to stand. Those are the trim lines that we look at initially. After we've adjusted all of those trim lines, then we check the motion. How much is the helmet moving? A little bit of shifting is actually quite normal. If the helmet was tight enough to not move at all, it would most certainly cause skin breakdown because uh, it would be pressing a little bit too hard. But we want to make sure it's not moving so much that it gets over the eyes or over the ears. So a little bit of shifting is fine, but so much like what Karim was describing, some of the pictures from that study where the helmet was so tilted that a whole section of the sideburn was above the ear, 
that helmet is so loose, of course it's not doing anything. So there's a little bit of shifting in play, but it should pretty much stabilize in a particular spot on the head. And the last thing we do, after we've made sure all the lengths of everything else are correct, is confirm the contact areas, because that's the meat of what the helmet's doing. Making sure it's making contact with the prominent areas of the head and has pockets of relief where we want that growth to be occurring. And this shows you a picture just to demonstrate exactly where those contact areas and where those relief areas are. So for deformational plagiocephaly, we want to restrict growth on that longer diagonal. So there's two red lines there, where the forehead is prominent and where the back of the head is most prominent. And we want to have actual pockets in the helmet, which allow for totally unrestricted growth in the areas that are flattened. For brachycephaly, across the entire forehead, and then have a huge spot in the back of the helmet. And we actually design the helmet with enough space projected up to how much we expect them to need to grow to get to symmetry or to get to one of the ratios that we were talking about. So we build in a pocket in the helmet that's big enough that it should accommodate the entire treatment. However, as they start to grow, sometimes we need to make small adjustments. This shows you in a little bit more detail what it looks like. This is our patient demo baby. <laughs> and she has scaphocephaly, so that means her head is narrow, and we really want contact front to back. And we did the bivalve helmet, like Karim was describing, how those work really well when we want good AP contact, because the helmet actually cinches down front to back. And what you're seeing me do here is I'm using a corset stay, which is basically a 16th inch of polyethylene plastic strip. And I'm actually reaching through those holes in the helmet, which are in the pockets that she should be growing into, to make sure that she has unrestricted area on the sides of her head and that she's getting good contact in the front and the back. And after checking it, I made a slight adjustment to the position of the helmet. This is a really important process. This is the meat of what the clinician fitting the helmet needs to be good at doing in order to make sure it fits properly. Because if it doesn't fit properly, if it's making contact in areas that are flattened, it'll restrict growth in those areas too. The helmet is not smart. It won't prevent it from growing in a spot you don't want it to if there's contact there, right? So you really need to pay attention when you're fitting it. And not just upright, but also laying down. The baby should be able to lay directly on the side wherever their flat spot is and still be fully offloaded. So even if I have her lay directly on the side of her head that's flattened, the helmet's pressure front to back should be sufficient to suspend her off the side of her head. And that's how we make sure that 23 hours a day while they're wearing this helmet full time, they're totally off those flat spots. And while they're lying down, we also try to shift the helmet to see how much motion there is because the pressures change a little bit when they're upright versus laying down. And we want to make sure it's effective in every position that they're potentially going to be in. In addition to this, we also have parents sometimes bring in car seats to check how that might influence their head position and make sure that the bulk of the helmet doesn't affect their neck position too much in car seats and talk with them about how we can adjust that as we're doing this fitting process. And so this appointment, really, we spend a lot of time with the parents, practicing with them, making sure they go through this donning process, understand how to open the helmet, lay it down on the child's head and secure it in the proper position. Often we'll have them take pictures of what the helmet looks like when it's in the proper position, really reinforcing, because that education is key. 
If the helmet is not put on properly, it could actually do harm. If it's put on in a way where it's depressing a part of the head that's flattened that we actually want the growth to be happening in, it could cause a problem. So we want to make sure that they're properly educated. At the very end of the appointment, we give them a big printout that goes through all the different kind of instructions and how their baby's going to adjust to using this helmet. We don't go straight from zero to them wearing it 23 hours a day for this treatment. We do a gradual break-in period of the course of about five to seven days. And the reason for this is twofold. One, we want the baby to adjust. We don't want it to be too traumatizing an experience to go from not having anything on their head to consistently having something place pressure. And two, we want to make sure that there are no areas where we're placing excessive pressure, and we want to catch those problems early before they become skin breakdown, because we are placing pressure where we're making contact. And every baby's skin is a little bit different. Some can tolerate more pressure, some less, some are more sensitive. It's a learning process for the clinician working with the child to figure out where their sensitivity threshold is and how much pressure can you place to restrict growth without causing any skin irritation. So day one, you start just one hour on, one hour off. The helmet's coming on and off the entire day. They're not wearing it during nights or nap time. The reason that we do one hour off is we want to check for redness and make sure any red marks, which there will be, there should be, um, are going away within an hour. And if those red marks are persisting past that hour, we know that that's reaching the thresholds of what skin can generally tolerate over the course of time. That area that's staying red past that hour will eventually start to become skin irritation and potentially skin breakdown. This gives us a way of catching problems early. Then day two, if they're doing well with day one, we progress to two hours on and one hour off, and so on as we go through the process. Introducing night and nap time where when we hit a point that the baby won't be woken up to take the helmet on or off. We never want them associating being woken up from a nap to have something new put on their head. Then the instructions follow through about the other risk factors of the helmet. Fevers. If there's a fever, no helmet. Like Corinne was saying, it traps in the heat. So if somebody has a fever, you want their head to be able to ref effectively release heat. And so we just discontinue the treatment until the fever is gone. And by fever, we move more than one degree because some babies get small little teething fevers. And those are usually okay because they might have that teething fever for weeks. <laughs> but big fevers, they're sick, they're sniffly, they're running a more than a degree fever, take it off. Also, honestly, Babies are much less likely to grow when they're sick. Their body's using and recruiting all of that energy to fight the illness, not to grow. And so we're not likely to lose progress that we would have gotten if the helmet had been left on during the sickness anyway, because we're only getting that progress with growth. We give instructions like wash daily. That's to do with the smell. They're sweating in an enclosed environment. It gets smelly even with the daily washing, but at least that helps minimize any bacteria that could potentially grow if there was allowed a film to develop on the helmet. And a layer less of clothing to help with that sweating. So whatever they would normally wear for that temperature, you're trapping in all the heat. It's like you're wearing a winter coat on your head. Layer less of clothing so their body can more effectively release heat. And if there's any sign that the skin is actually starting to break down, even starting to get a little bit peely, some kids with really sensitive skin, we've had it happen day one, after an hour and a half, they 
start to get a little peel, discontinue the treatment until they come to see us. It's really important that we catch those problems early because we don't want, first off, we just don't want skin breakdown to be happening. Second off, the amount of time it takes to heal is time that we can't spend in the helmet. So that takes away from our treatment. Okay, so let's move on to follow-up appointments. Um, like I said, there are about six to eight of them. We do have a one-week follow-up appointment after giving the parents all of that information, taking our time and fitting the helmet. Um, we like to see how they did over the course of that week. There are usually a lot of growing pains with this. Parents are unsure of what is a good thing and what's a bad thing, if they should worry. Um, so they do have... Um, of the ability to contact us on my chart, we like to be really open for them to be able to give them instructions and they can send us pictures. Um, so at that one week, we really talk with the family. We assess the redness. We try to figure out how long it's been lasting, whether or not it's an issue, um, and we can make adjustments. We can shave out the foam like I'm doing here in this photo um, using our grinding machine. And we usually do this if the redness is lasting longer than an hour or the spots are really small, smaller than a dime. So we don't want really bright red spots. We want to distribute that pressure over a large area so that the, the redness becomes lighter. We also want to double check again that the helmet's not rotating too much. You know, after they've gone through a daily life, they might notice, okay, it's tilting in their eyes when she's sitting in the car seat. Or I noticed when she rolls over, the sideburn goes all the way into her eye. So sometimes these are things you don't catch at the initial fitting because they're not doing their day-to-day -day routine. So knowing that and knowing how um, the helmet is working in their life is really important to address at this one-week follow-up. We then typically do routine follow-ups every three to four weeks. If they're younger, sometimes we'll do it sooner because they're growing at a faster rate. So this means we may need to shave out that foam a little bit quicker. Um, but we see them on average about every three to four weeks. So this is the summary, the scan summary from our little patient model. Um, after she'd been in the helmet 23 weeks. So you can see that she increased quite a bit in her circumference and we saw quite a bit of growth in the cranial breadth as well. So you saw her initial scan was about 0.67 and you can see here she's up to 0.765 and our goal is in that 0.8 range so she's progressing really really well. Um, you can also see in this summary her diagonals, and you can see that the 157.7 is very close to the 159.3, so she does not have much asymmetry at all, so we're not worried about that. Um, An important thing to note with this, too, is this growth pattern you don't see outside of a helmet. You will never see a baby only grow ML outside of a helmet environment. They would grow circumferentially, and maybe the width would grow a little bit more than the length. But you would never see these contact areas that we've been showing you where two scans are layered over each other, and one shows very targeted growth in a specific area. Without the helmet intervention, that doesn't happen. And so this is how we know the helmet is working, because we're seeing really focal parts of the head that are getting no growth, and the pockets of growth happening in these very concentrated areas that we're guiding it towards. 
And we do monitor some babies who we don't recommend treatment for, but their parents still like to come in to get scans to just see how they're doing with the repositioning or keeping them off the back of their head. And a lot of times, like Krista said, we'll see a circumferential increase. Um, it'll be a little bit at a slower rate, um, but they do still get correction most times. It's, it's Unless they're really severe, we don't really see them progress in a backwards direction once they start rolling over, sitting up, um, walking even. We see mostly improvements. And then our goals for the end of the treatment. Our recommendations as clinical staff are based on numbers and just an overall assessment of the visual appearance. So for deformational plagiocephaly, we want that asymmetry to become less than five millimeters. Five millimeters is such a mild version of plagiocephaly that we would not recommend helmet treatment at that particular point. And for brachycephaly, we want that cephalic ratio to be less than 87 if they have that flattening. If we get close to 90, um, a lot of parents will discontinue because just visually they're pretty happy with the treatment. And we make recommendations based on these standards for U.S. head shapes that have been taken from census of measurements of babies' heads from all over the country. Uh, but a lot of it is just final determination made by the family. And we have some parents decide, visually, I'm very happy with where my baby's head shape is right now. I want to discontinue. The symmetry might still be 7 millimeters. That's fine. There's no... There's no reason to continue if you're happy with the head shape. And also, as the baby gets older, the ability for that part of the head to deform again decreases with each week. And two, two reasons for that. One is the bones are actually getting more solid. And some of the fontanelles, those junctures where several sutures meet, are actually starting to close up and get smaller that posterior fontanelle closes within the first couple of months. And so the growth around that posterior fontanelle really diminishes as they're starting to grow. And that soft spot that most people can feel on the top of the head starts to get a lot smaller. That's that anterior fontanelle. So as everything's starting to solidify and some of the growth is starting to slow and get firmer and they're starting to move more, the likelihood of it reoccurring is really small. And so if you want to take them out of it, it's perfectly fine if they're happy with the visual shape. And these pictures here just kind of give you a sense of the expectation visually of what we expect to get. That baby on the right is actually not perfectly symmetric. It's a couple of millimeters off, but can you really tell? No, and this baby is bald. So if, if you imagine a couple, more, a couple more months and they start to have a full head of hair, hair actually covers quite a bit. And if you were to feel your own head, I'm sure you'd be surprised I was to find the nice flat spot I have on the top of my head that you would never know because I have some nice hair coverage there. So a lot of it gets covered by the hair, and this is kind of the part of life where it's going to be the most apparent and obvious couple of takeaways. Helmets are a commitment. This is a huge time commitment on the part of the parents. The whole family sometimes has to come to visits. Grandparents, aunts, uncles have to help with babysitting. This is a family commitment to do this. And the only situation in which we would say it's a necessity is if there's a synostosis and they're having a surgical procedure where the remolding is really necessary to make sure growth happens in an appropriate way. But outside of that, it is all up to the parents to decide if this is something that they're concerned about and would like to pursue the treatment for. But it is not an easy treatment, so make the decision with a lot of care and thought. 
like it says here, it's optional and cosmetic. And we use quantitative measurements to give parents a reference and to give them a means of showing progress. But these quantitative measurements are really trumped by the qualitative visual appearance and how they feel about the appearance of the head shape. But I will say a lot of people really find comfort in the quantitative. Um, they really like to know the progress that's happened. And a lot of times they're looking at their child's head every single day. So to them, the progress is really slow. Whereas sometimes to us, we're like, wow, this has really changed in a month. Um, so having that quant qualitative as well as quantitative measure, I think, is really comforting for them. So this has hopefully given you an overview of the reasons that we do helmet treatment and the progress that we can make with it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.